How are you, sir? This is Pierre. Oh. I can't believe I'm talking to you, Dr. A the Great. Oh, I don't know about that. I love listening to you. You have a personality just like my father. I don't think you should feel helpless. You are helpless. Doctor, I really appreciate that. That makes me feel a lot better. You be at peace, or else I'm going to yell at you. Trying to find a reason to speak to you. I think you're the best thing since sliced bread. That Ray, he's something. Thank you so much for what you're doing for all the parents out there. They don't know what I can possibly do. I don't either. I'm getting my money worth, I think, at this phone call. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Well, it's a little past uh, a little past time for uh, New Year's resolutions. However, I decided, I made the big mistake, I, I posted my New Year's resolution to social media, and then I realized that two months after that, when I'm uh, elbow deep in a bag of Cheetos, I really don't need anyone asking me how my marathon training is going. Just a little incongruous there. Nice to have you with me, Dr. Ray Grandy, program. Doctor is in, variant of the program. Look Back Friday. Got the calls up there that were selected from the cornucopia of communications. And sometimes I feel like Howard Cosell, you know. Judge Foreman, pugilistic, truculent young man. So, given that, we will look at those calls, and then, of course, I will get to say more about them for lots of reasons. Uh, I'd like to think it's because maybe there's something... Helpful I can add, but I think it really comes down to I just didn't get a chance to say enough. I mean, you cut right through it. So we will get to those calls shortly. One of the more common things I hear from parents, and not necessarily in the office, just people I talk to at random, you know, on the streets, walking by. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what we do. And usually they're referring to discipline. They have a certain particular consequence they use as their go-to consequence or even some creative consequence. And they just think it bounces off the child. They don't care. doesn't matter to him. First of all, that's a, a very misleading perception because 99.926473%, that's my rough estimate, of the time... The child does care. He just doesn't care that you don't care that he thinks he doesn't care. Or something like that, if that made any sense. Let me give you several of the top reasons why parents are tricked into thinking a child doesn't care. Example. They may use a particular consequence and the child doesn't get upset. He just kind of accepts it in stride. I've even had kids, if they're sent to the corner, for example, they're a little one, six, seven, eight years old, they're sent to the corner, and they sing in the corner. I had a lady really bothered by her six-year-old doing that. What good is the corner if he's just going to go there and sing? And I asked her a simple question. Does he ever just go to the corner on his own and sing? Not because of discipline? No. Has he ever? 
No. So what you're saying is he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. He figures if I got to linger here for however much I have to stay here, I might as well sing, might as well occupy my time. That isn't the gauge by which you decide whether he cares or not. The gauge is whether the behavior ever so slowly starts to change. If he's got some piece of behavior that's particularly irksome, and you want to teach him out of it, and you use the corner, even though he's singing in the corner, if the behavior declines in frequency, now it may not decline fast, parents get impatient, we want it to decline by tomorrow, but if you notice over a month that the behavior has declined, then the corner is working, and I don't care how many verses of I've got to be me, he sings. Now that's one. Two, the first seven visits to the corner, <clears throat> he may sing. Visit number eight to 15, he's not singing anymore. Visit number 16 to 25, corner's getting to be a bit of a drag. And visit number 26 to 43, he just doesn't like this corner at all. He's sick of it. So it takes repetition of a particular consequence, whatever it is you decide to use, that will make a child eventually care about avoiding that consequence. It's very simple. Well, I send him to his room, he doesn't care. Well, uh, one reason he might not care is this Disney World up there. Get rid of the side-by-side refrigerator freezer, the wet bar. Get rid of the 60-inch screen TV because you have the 32 in your bedroom. Get rid of 82 stuffed animals. Get rid of the nine-line phone connected to every state. That's the first thing. The room isn't necessarily that bad. He doesn't care. Well... If he didn't care, for example, let's say you got a rule that uh, yeah, you leave your stuff laying around, I put it in my box, and you want to get it back, it costs you a dime. Well, he doesn't care. He'll, he'll give me a dollar and take ten things out. Has he ever just walked up to you and said, hey, Mom, I got a little extra money, here's a dollar? Has he? Of course not. The fact that he takes the consequence in stride it doesn't mean he doesn't care it just means he's taking it in stride if he truly didn't care how come every so often he doesn't say hey ma you mind if i just head over to the corner and just do some thinking i need my alone time i, I really appreciate that corner time i like it a lot maybe i'll even break into song if i go there or he doesn't care because he knows that really bothers you. You care that he doesn't care. So he cares that you care he doesn't care. It's kind of a, I can salvage something out of this discipline. I'll just, I'll just make her believe that whatever she's doing isn't going to work. Because then you'll bug me. And there's another reason. Parents will say, I took away... His favorite video game. That didn't seem to bother him at all. It's what I call scraping 
the icing off the cake. If he has a whole lot of perks and privileges, and you took one away, even if it ranks high on his favorites, there's only one. He's still got the whole cake there. Parents will say that. I took away her stuffed animal, her favorite stuffed animal. I, I took it away for a couple of days because she just left it on the steps and I tripped over it. How many other stuffed animals does she have? Or how many other toys does she have? The average kid has a whole lot of stuff. A whole lot of stuff. So when you take something away, it's a small percentage of their warehouse. And they can they can live without it for the defined amount of time. Or it may bother them, but they can get over it rather quickly because there's other ways for them to amuse themselves. Such as the course of a average child's opportunities, if you will. There's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons why kids convince parents that they don't care when they're held accountable for their discipline. All of those reasons simply are not reality. They look to be indications that they truly don't care what you're doing, but they're not. They're not at all. They're just misleading perceptions. In the end, I tell parents, a child's reaction to a piece of discipline is not an indicator of whether he cares or not. The indicator is, does the misbehavior decline? Or does the wanted behavior increase? That's the indication. And it doesn't have to be fast. It can be nice and easy over time. But as long as the trend is in the direction that you would wish as a parent to teach, then it doesn't matter what his reaction is to the discipline. What counts is the lesson being learned. I'm Dr. Ray. Catholic Charities of Shiawassee and Genesee Counties have been providing health and creating hope since 1941. It's the generosity of donors that allows them to provide necessary services, such as their warming center, which provides refuge and comfort to thousands in our community. They also offer hot meals in their soup kitchens and help families make ends meet in their community closet. Even the smallest donation makes a meaningful difference. Join us in their mission by giving a donation at catholiccharitiesflint.org. When you talk about the Reformation, you often hear talk of five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Catholics have no serious problem with Solus Christus or Sola Gratia. The problems are with Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. Catholics will maintain that Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is itself unscriptural. Where in Scripture does Scripture refer to itself as the only infallible authority that we have? It's also illogical to say that you stand on Scripture alone presupposes that you know what Scripture is. And 
Frankly, we don't know what scripture is because it's a tradition that we've inherited. We don't establish it. We know what counts as holy scripture because Catholic bishops detected that certain texts were inspired by God. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays from 4 to 6 on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. Join Father John Hedges for 5 p.m. Mass at Our Lady of Fatima Shrine in Riverview, Tuesday, February 20th, the feast day of Saints Jacinta and Francisco. Receive a plenary indulgence under church guidelines. Fellowship follows the Mass. Call 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. That's 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. Uh, my next book. My next book is going to be a book about reverse psychology. My advertising slogan: Don't buy it. Thanks for joining me here. Before we get to your calls, uh, some weeks ago I was lecturing at church and I was reading the second reading. It was First Corinthians chapter seven, verses twenty-nine to thirty-one. Here's how it goes. I tell you, brothers and sisters, the time is running out. From now on, let those having wives act as not having them. Those weeping is not weeping. Those rejoicing is not rejoicing. For the world in its present form is passing away. Now, Paul was making the point. You got this is temporary. But, however... From now on, let those having wives act as not having them. When I got back to my pew and I sat next to my wife, she said into my ear, Ray, that's not what it means. Don't get any ideas. And I know, I didn't... You know how people put their favorite scripture verse on a little thing and put a frame around it and keep it in their office. I just, yeah, I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't want to put, let those as having wives act as not having them I, as, as my, as a favorite scripture verse. That would probably wouldn't be cool. Probably just wouldn't be cool. And speaking of marriage, Lisa from Ohio is having trouble. She'd like to go to counseling. She'd like to go to marital counseling. However, as so often is the case, it takes two to go. And only one wants to go. How do you encourage a spouse to attend marriage counseling when it is desperately needed? Are you getting resistance? Very much so. So it's not a matter of encouraging him to do this. It's a matter of how do I talk him into it? Pretty much, yeah. Ah. I got to believe you've tried. In all kinds of ways, right? Absolutely. We've even gone to a few sessions and none have worked out. And why do you think they didn't work out? Well, at the last one, he was personally offended by the therapist, so he didn't want to go back. Boy, is that common. That is so common. When you got somebody that's resistant to therapy and they feel they're being dragged along, if the therapist even remotely 
says anything to make them look at themselves, they get upset. Yeah, that if was that definitely th- the case. If that therapist would have just focused on you and all the ways that you're you're fouling up this marriage, I think your husband probably would have hung around. I think you're absolutely right. Hmm. I should do marriage counseling. Uh, here's Here's what happens, and I get a lot of calls like yours, Lisa. I tell the person, you come in yourself. We work with the spouse who wants to come in to deal with how to better get along in the marriage, how to not be so upset so easily. That's a big one. When when you're living in a, a marriage that has a lot of friction to it, you get, can get upset. You get very upset. And your peace is destroyed. So we work hard on getting your peace. We also talk a little bit about what ways you could be provoking this. Well, we're going we're gonna to probe there. Because if, in fact, you want your spouse to be easier to live with, we work on making you easier to live with, and hopefully that will reverberate to your spouse. There is a story told about an old country church. The congregation is sitting attentively in the service when right in the middle... A nasty-looking, sulfur-smelling creature drops down. The congregation panics, runs every which direction, place scatters. When the dust clears, the only person left is an old farmer sitting in the first pew. The creature is upset because he had intended to scare everyone and this farmer looks totally imperturbed. So the creature starts. You know who I am. Yep. You know what I could do? Yep. You afraid of me? Nope. Why? Been living with your sister for 40 years. Now, before you get mad at me and call me a misogynist, the point of that story is, unless you are living with Satan or his sister, if you can make some changes in the way you approach another person, in this case a spouse, generally they will respond positively somewhat. Maybe not anywhere near like you would like, but somewhat. Because most people do. When there are a lot of ugly moments in a marriage, typically the dynamics are the two people go at each other. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of point-counterpoint, accuse, non-accuse, dodge, duck, U2s. If the one person who comes to counseling by himself, herself, says, I would like to be able to diffuse some of these situations. I would like to find ways so that these things become less friction-filled, less ill-will in the moment. That's something we can do. 
it does two things. It helps one spouse's peace. You're coming into counseling by yourself, and you'd love your spouse to be there, which would be the ideal situation. But if that's not going to happen, you come in and you want to get your own peace somehow, some way. You want to you want to learn with the stuff that's driving to live with the stuff that's driving you crazy. Obviously. And two, you you want to look at your typical response to it. What do you like? I'll just give you a small example. Give you a small example. Say the spouse says, I'm sorry. And your response is, words don't mean anything. If you were truly sorry, you would change. That's a way to guarantee, that's a smackdown. That's an apology smackdown. You're not going to get many more apologies if that's your standard response. Yeah, but I don't believe he or she means it. They just say it to try to make things better for the moment. You don't have to believe they mean it to accept it. You don't have to challenge it. Because all that does is essentially say, I don't believe you. Don't ever come to me saying you're sorry because I'm going to fling it back at you. That's one small example of what you can do. Now, it sometimes takes a little bit of work to get someone to say, okay, what can I do differently? Because their view is, I'm so frustrated with my spouse, so frustrated with this person I've been living with for 23 years, that all I can see is their negatives. That's all I can see. And I'll ask. I'll say, well, did, did they have positives? Yes. Well, you obviously married him for things you liked about him or her, correct? Yes. Did those all go away? No. Where are they? Oh, they're buried. They're burying you beneath all kinds of ill will. Okay. Maybe we got to start dredging up some of those good things. There's something in psychology called negativity bias. Negativity bias says that we, part of our human nature, fallen human nature as Christians would call it, is we focus on the bad over the good. The media lives by this. The news media. They're, they're going to parade up front the nastiest stuff because that draws the biggest eyes. Biggest ratings. So, that can happen in a marriage. You can focus on the negative. And if that's happening, one person who comes into counseling can, can, can reassess their perspective. Even if they think, and this is not unusual that they would think this, their spouse is 80% of the problem. Assuming that's accurate, let's work on the 20% that's yours and see if that shifts a little bit of the percentage. That takes humility. It truly does. It takes a willingness to scrutinize oneself. We don't like looking at ourselves. 
When we're in a relationship that creates all kinds of problems for us, it's so easy to say, if that person were different, I'd be different. True, but if you started being a little different, would that person respond? And again, unless you're living with Satan or his sister, they probably will respond a, a, a little and that's really your goal. You want, to, you want to turn the momentum a little bit. And sometimes you come in by yourself, you can do that. Maybe your spouse will notice that you're doing that. I want to make a comment on this on the other side, too. But i got to take a break now, because that music says, Raymond, you're off. did it. I didn't think this was going to happen, but it was a dream of mine. When I used to talk to my high school counselors, you know, these high school counselors are the types that say, according to the testing we have, uh, you would you would best be geared toward this. And they said, what, what are you looking for in a job? And I said, I want one of those jobs where people ask, do you actually get paid for doing that? And that's what I got here. I get to talk with you. Now, I'll look back Friday. You don't call in, but but the other days of the week you do. And uh, get a chance to talk with you. It's very nice to sit here and sip my Coke, have some pretzels. And uh, I actually get paid for doing this. I'm negotiating right now with EWTN, although they don't realize this. Um, I, uh, I'm going to negotiate with them to get paid by the word. And I'll be start using a lot. You think I talk a lot now? <laughs> I'm going to double. I will double my output if I'm getting paid by the word. So far, they've resisted, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I've sent them, what, nine or ten letters requesting that. Okay, here's, I wanted to just follow up. I want to look back on that look back call, look back squared. If I get one spouse, well, not me, if one spouse decides to come in, the other spouse is resistant. After two or three sessions, I might say, we, we, could, we could go farther if somehow you can convince your spouse to come in. Now, the roadblock that we have is the stay-at-home spouse often thinks, yeah, yeah you, you've just spent two or three sessions talking about all that's wrong with me. And then I'm going to go in there and have to dig out of the hole. Here's what, I, here's what I tell the spouse coming in alone. Please tell your husband, your wife, that I said I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm hearing only your perspective. I can't get a good picture hearing only your perspective. I really need to hear how your spouse sees it. Framing it that way, I've had, I've had spouses then come in. But if they think I'm going to be a counselor who says, well, you know, I've already got three sessions of hearing what a rot gut human being you are. 
you're already in a hole, and I don't think there's any way you're going to dig your way out of it. Now, I'm not going to say it like that, but if that's what they think, they're not coming in. Why would they want to come in? It's protective. So I always say, please, I'd like to hear their perspective on things. I'm only hearing one side. And I can't, I can't accurately determine where the reality is in many of these cases. Like I gotta, I gotta hear, I gotta hear both perspectives. All right, see if I got enough time. Yeah, I got enough. I got enough time to take the question. Um, and uh, five minutes. Later, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Let's let's go to the. Let's go to Lee from Ohio. It's a four-minute question, and it'll take us to the break, but then I can comment on it after the break. Four-year-old grandson who simply cannot be without mom. I'm calling today because about a month and a half ago, my four-year-old grandson got separated from mom at the zoo for less than five minutes. However, now she can't even walk out of the room without him saying, where's mom, and immediately crying, and he's very fearful. And he's supposed to go to preschool in about a week and a half. What would you suggest? Well, forget it. He's not gone to preschool. He's not gone to first grade. He's not gone to second grade. That's it. Hopefully, he'll be able to go to college. So I'm hoping. I hope so. Oh, me too. So what does mom do when he gets upset? She just reassures him, I'm here, I'm in the next room, or I went down the basement, or I just went out to the garage for a minute, I'm here. And does he calm down? Only when he sees her. Does he follow her? Not if he's really involved in something, no. And not if she, you know, if she happens to forget to check, you know, to say, oh, I'm going to run downstairs for a minute, then he's frantic. But he's, he's number three in a line of four kids. He's got so older brothers like, and sisters? Yes. Obvious, obviously he does if he's younger. number three. Yeah, what, yeah, that's a dumb question. Well, does he take comfort that they're in the same room? No. Oh, it's got to be mom. Yeah. Well, here's what mom needs to do. In full view of him, she needs to put her hands on the shoulders, possibly if an older daughter, and say, mm-hmm. by the authority vested in me... I allow you status of mother in my absence. No, I'm being facetious. Being facetious. Oh, good. Because I don't think that would work. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. I know that. Uh, First of all, a lot of kids do this without having had a scary experience like that little guy had. Mm -hmm. A lot of them just out of nowhere do this. I don't want that age. Oh, yeah. That's That's prime age for it. Three to six. That's prime age. Mm I would say that she's going to have to slowly wean him. Mm. And by that, maybe ease up on the reassurance. Mm. You know, uh, and, and mm-hmm. in, inch by inch, not tell him that she's gone to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I hope he doesn't throw a fit. I hope he just is kind of weepily distressed. Is that the way it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when yes. she comes back, she can say, see, I came back. So mm-hmm. what she's doing is she's reversing it. She's she's kind of easing her way out of this whole reassurance thing, because that isn't working. It's making it worse, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. So mm-hmm. what she can do is slowly cease doing that, 
Or she could go cold turkey if she wants. He'll probably, you know, he'll probably melt down quite a bit. And then she mm-hmm. comes back and says, see, I'm back. I'm always coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you know what she tells him? Yeah. Okay, then she can tell him this. You know, when you're 15, you're not going to want me around. Just understand that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you think preschool is going to be a disaster? Oh, he'll yeah, he'll he'll melt down and he'll carry on and yeah. do all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it will mm-hmm. depend on how they choose to handle it. If they say, she yeah, yeah, we the two older ones walk them in uh, yeah. because they go to school at the same time. Okay. Would that That's be a cool. good idea? Sure. Yeah. But but here's the thing mm-hmm. though. She's she's got to wean him from this idea that I'm not safe if you're out of my sight. And the way uh-huh. to wean him is to slowly stop this kind of reassurance and to ease up on all the mm-hmm. uh I'm okay. I'm in the next room. Do you hear my voice? I'm doing fine. Mm-hmm. Hear that? No, that see that if that were to work, it would be working. Instead, right. Lee, it's it's kind of making it worse. Right. Well, he could be playing in another room, and then he realizes he doesn't realizes. see her. And That's then right. he starts, Look and out. she shouts, I'm in the other room, or I'm down the basement, you know. I, I, and, if yeah. it were me, I would probably slowly stop doing that. Oh, let me draw a parallel. Uh, the, the music's going to start here in a second. Well, if you're going to be with me after the break, it's the only way you'll know what I'm going to add. And I'm going to draw a parallel to an adult having anxiety over certain situations. So it's not necessarily how to handle a four-year-old. It might be how to handle yourself. Welcome to the Doctor's In Look Back Friday. Okay, recap of the previous call. little four-year-old guy got separated from his mom for several minutes at a zoo. And uh, understandably, unsettled him pretty good. Now it's a situation where from that event, he doesn't want mom to be out of his sight, even in another room. Her approach to this typically has been to reassure him however possible, I'm here, just in another room, etc. Therapists have given that name a safety behavior. Now, the safety behavior is not something that the four-year-old is doing. It's something that a loving mom is doing to reassure him. For the moment, it probably does. A parallel can be drawn to a lot of anxieties that grown-ups experience in situations that uh, scare them, make them nervous, make them anxious. They want to avoid the situation. Or, for example, if they're afraid of driving somewhere on an interstate or having to make a left-hand turn or sitting at a light, as long as somebody is with them, they're okay. All that does is provide temporary relief. In the long run, that kind of behavior just keeps it alive, keeps the fear, whatever the anxiety is attached to, alive. With this little four-year-old guy, the dynamic is becoming, I get fretful, mom does what she can to reassure me, she says, I'm here in this other room, or I'm back, 
Or maybe she comes back for a moment and says, see, I'm here. I'm just going to go up to the bathroom. Whatever she does to reassure him. And it does, it does temper his unease. He probably relaxes a little bit. But what it's doing is it's setting into place a recurrent dynamic. You get upset. I try to make you less upset. It works for a little bit until next time. In much more serious anxiety-provoking situations among adults, those kinds of safety behaviors, in other words, I'll leave the scene, I won't drive unless somebody drives with me, whatever it might be, I won't go to a restaurant unless I can sit by the door, etc., We develop all kinds of coping mechanisms to ease the anxiety for the moment. But what is happening is for the long term, it is cementing the anxiety. This little guy will probably respond much more quickly than an adult would with a similar kind of phobia. Or any kind of phobia. Because he's four he'll realize rather quickly that there's no danger here. Mom, even though she's out of sight, he can get preoccupied playing, talking to his sisters, doing whatever he's doing. And for the moment, he's forgotten that mom's not even around. But even if he's focusing on the fact that mom's not around, where is she, where is she, where is she? He'll find out that she ultimately always returns. And she doesn't necessarily have to say, see, see, I came back. I told you, I came back. No, she just walks into the room or whatever. Or she walks into an adjacent room and he sees her. Whatever. But she's not going to any longer feed into safety behaviors. Now, I know someone might think, Wow, gosh, Dr. Ray, that seems, you know, wow, it seems kind of uh, insensitive, kind of psychologically neglectful. No, it isn't. No, it isn't at all, because your goal in the long run is to make this little guy comfortable when mom's out of sight. And as I said to mom or grandma who made the call, it's going to be at a point when he's 14 years old and he's not going to like when mom's in sight. Mom, mom, can't you walk way behind me? Mom, do you have to sit where I sit? Can you can you just maybe sit four bleachers up? Oh, mom, don't hug me. Come on. <laughs> don't let teenagers do that to you, by the way. That's another that's another manologue at another time. With her essentially pulling away from the constant reassurance, it's more likely, believe it or not, that his his comfort level will increase when mom's out of sight. I know it's counterintuitive, it is, but trust me, that's what all the research says, and I think Mom will find out that that will work. All righty. Let me take a break. So when we come back, we have enough time to take one more call. I'm Dr. Ray. You're not fit yet. Not fit. I'm the doctor. No, doctor. I'm the doctor, and I say that you're not fit. You may be a doctor, but I'm the doctor. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 
844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. My husband often looks up the songs before math even starts. He has some of his favorites and gets excited when he sees them on the playlist. We know that singing is like praying twice. I wondered what the power of those prayers are when being sung in heaven. Do angels really sing? Well, in church, I think about the choir of angels. There are certain hymns and songs that just take me to another place. Oh, what the music must sound like. A melody that soothes my soul, warms my heart, and will have me rejoicing that I am home. What do the angels sing? What songs do they glorify the Lord? I can only imagine the instruments that play those tunes. It may be a while before we could hear that music, but for now, let us play our music here on earth for the Lord. Let us pray twice in song while we imagine heaven's song. This has been a Christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Denhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from complaining. Feast on appreciation. Fast from negatives. Feast on affirmatives. Fast from unrelenting pleasures. Feast on unceasing prayer. Fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. Thank you for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. This is Look Back Friday. Let's get right to it. Uh, okay, that'll give us enough time. Um, we have an anonymous gentleman calling from Kentucky. He's perplexed at a parent's explanation that he heard. I was uh, substituting for my wife. She runs an aftercare program, after-school program, at our local uh, parish school. You're a brave man. uh, Yeah, after I did that for a week, I went home and watched uh, Kindergarten Cop, but that's another story. (laughs) At one point, a mother came in to pick up her two boys. The younger boy was in the art program. He's in kindergarten. He was doing artwork and his little paper cutout that he got cut, uh, was cutting out, got torn out, I don't know. But he started yelling and screaming at his mother and hitting her. And I was quite taken aback. She just sat there and calmly talked to him. And I finally said, son, that's no way to talk to your, to treat your mother. It took me all I could do from to restrain myself to keep from intervening right there and sitting in time out and giving him a serious talking to his how'd the mother react when you how'd the mother react when you said that not much she kind of said kind of weakly agreed with me and on the way out she said something about when he gets that way and when he's hungry and if i give him a snack he'll calm down there it is and 
Snack parenting. You yep. were thinking smack parenting. She's thinking snack parenting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I know if that had been one of my children, the consequences would have been very long and over. But they wouldn't have got any snack, that's for sure. What do you think's but, going uh, on with that mother? I think it's weak parenting, personally. And I think i got another situation I'm, I'm dealing with that I think it's the same same thing that parents, well, you know, they want to say, my kid's a good kid. Uh, yeah, he's not on drugs. And, he's not on drugs. Yeah. Well, you know, little children are little savages if you let them. And you have to teach them right and wrong, what's good behavior, what's bad behavior, and there has to be... Sir, why do you think why do you think that your view on parenting is so radically different from this mother's view? Well, probably because of age. I am uh, I'm in my seventies. I grew up with a different. Put this way, if I had done that to my mother, I would probably. Oh, you wouldn't be here daughter, talking to me. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially if my father was there. <laughs> Let me jump in here very quickly, sir, at a comment. I believe that your generation, as a group, had more parenting sense with less education. I mean, your generation was far, far, far less educated, uh, college-wise anyway, than the youngest generation here. And yet, what you saw is extreme... But it isn't uncommon, which is, the parent says, this, this is the child's conduct, this is his feelings, this is his expression, and um, this happens when he's hungry, so uh, I just need to give him a snack, not a smack, a snack, and he'll be fine. Now, the danger, sir, I've been at this a long time, is that the snack ain't going to work, or if it does, it's only going to work for a short period of time, and that kid's going to get older and older and older, and he's going to hit harder and harder, and mom will wonder, why is he like this? Why is he doing this? I believe that so many of the ideas, sir, that now run parenthood are absolutely devastating to a good, loving parent-child relationship. People listening to you, I think, maybe not this, maybe not so much this audience, but I think a generic young parent audience would listen to you and think, you're a throwback. You're the old days. We're much smarter now. We're much better at this now than, than you were and your mom was. And we know how to gently raise children. And we know how to get through to what the emotional struggles are, what the low sugar is in this kid's physiology so that he's hitting me. I know, I'm telling you, my friend, uh, you witnessed something that comes to my office regularly, and I typically have to explore with the parent. When that happens, what is keeping you from responding to it? For many parents, the last place they look is their own parenting. This mom, this is the old, he's tired, 
get that all the time. I one time my ma, my wife made an observation about a a preschooler who was just quite obnoxious a good part of the time, and always the parents said he he's tired, and my wife said she didn't say this to them said it to me she said he's just always tired that must be what it is he's always tired. When you don't look at yourself as a parent, you find reasons, you find excuses. When I used to work in Columbiana County, I was a consultant to the school districts and the SBH programs. It stands for Severe Behavior Handicapped. Did that for about 10 years. One of the elementary classes we had, there was a fella in it, and I talk about this in my very first book, first book way back. You're a Better Parent Than You Think is the title of the book. And I talked about this little guy who's whose mother was absolutely convinced the reason he was in SBH, the Severe Behavior Handicap Class, because his diet. She was eliminating almost everything from his diet. That poor kid, when we had little outings and the other kids got neat stuff, he had his granola with his tofuti sandwich. No, I'd misbehave if I watched that all the time, too. And she was convinced. And, and to see her interact with him was very obvious. She was a very weak, permissive parent. But she had convinced herself, probably for her own self-protection, her own self-image as a parent, that it was the food. That's what did it. It is very easy to look for other explanations. You've got you to look at the one thing you can change the easiest, generally now, is yourself. What's happening here? This child is acting this way. Is this because they're going to act this way no matter what? Because they had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with non-sugar related jelly? That's what he was witnessing. Now, one could say, well, yeah, of course he got a snack. He settled down. Why? Because he got what he wanted. One could say, well, I realize I'm getting smarter. All I do is take a swing at mom and I get a snack. It's got like a vending machine, you know? You kick the vending machine, and you get your quarter back. Or, well, shows you my age, quarter. You get your $12 back. You did buy a candy bar. That's what, uh, that can happen. And at some point, I suspect Mom's going to realize her snack parenting is only going to carry her so far. But the fact that this little guy could hit her and kick her, uh... That's not due to a lack of a snack. I might make a good article. The lack of a snack. It's due to the fact that there's some dynamics in this parenting that she is trying to find a can't-we-all-just-get-along approach. And when he, in effect, says, no, we can't all just get along, she turns to plan B, which is here. Here's a snack. Now, I don't know what her snack is. I mean, at least if it's a Twinkie or something, you could say, okay, what if it's a, an apple or something? Ooh, I don't know. After a while, I think that snack will lose its power. Thanks for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. I'm Dr. A. Grandy Program. Look back Friday. Good Lord permitting, I'll see you Monday. Thanks, Andrew Kruchek, for all you do to edit these calls. I appreciate your company. Walk with God. That is the snack of a lifetime. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook and Instagram. 
The Doctor Is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.